You're listening to the best possible taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and thanks for tuning in to tonight's Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. Coming up in the show tonight, nutritionist and chef Sid Sheehan will be in the studio talking about arthritis-fighting foods. Emer O'Donnell will be talking about an initiative called Discover Farmhouse Cheese. Simon Tyrell will be giving us an insight into Craigie Cider, which is a vintage Irish craft cider made in County Wicklow. And Helena Morgan will be telling me about the Dublin cookbook that is raising much-needed funds for Temple Street Children's University Hospital. If you want to get in touch with me, feel free to drop me an email, s.noonan at live.ie, or send me a tweet at Queen of Org, short for Queen of Organisation. So, as I said tonight, I'm joined in studio by our resident nutritionist, Sid Sheehan from Nourish by Nature in Listowel, who's going to talk about arthritis-fighting foods. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Sid, you're welcome back to the programme this evening. Thanks a million, Sharon. And tonight we're going to talk about arthritis-fighting foods. Yes. So this is a huge illness at the moment in Ireland. Well, it always has been, but it's certainly getting more common if you look at statistics. You know, the numbers, the cases of arthritis are going up. And what's more worrying is that it's now, it was always considered an elderly person's disease. It's no longer that case. Um, Now you have people in their 20s and 30s that are being diagnosed with arthritis. So it is a bit worrying. And what are the symptoms of it? What do arthritis oh, sufferers experience in a day-to-day? What they experience day? is chronic joint pain. That would be the main, um, main symptom of arthritis. Um, like just to give you an idea, at the moment, um, it's estimated that there are one million people, including children. So it's not just adults. Kids are suffering from this as well. So there's one million people suffering from arthritis in Ireland at the moment. So when you consider we're a fairly small nation, so that is 20-25% of our population that are suffering from the symptoms associated with arthritis. So the pain that people suffer then and experience can actually be alleviated through managing what they eat? Absolutely. There are certain foods um, that I would kind of recommend people to reduce or eliminate. And then there is the inclusion of other foods in to help fight it. So there's actually some foods that could help eliminate it so you don't suffer at all. Absolutely. Yeah. There's fantastic success stories out there. People that do clean up their diet, for want of a better word, um, take out all the bad foods, change their lifestyle and get the, the good foods back in. So you're getting good fats in there, your omega-3 fats, stuff like that. So increase oily fish. That's all really good for, for joint lubrication. Um, it's going to stop you from seizing up. You'll get that. Maybe people might want to supplement with it. Um, and eventually, because nobody wants to be taking long-term um, anti-inflammatory medication. Um, but unfortunately, most people are most people that are diagnosed with arthritis would be on some sort of a medication. Obviously, it's essential. But what you can do is alleviate the symptoms yourself through your diet. What sort of foods would you recommend then? Okay, so we look at the foods to avoid maybe first, and we can finish off then with the positive side of it. So again, I've spoken before about trans fats. These would be the bad fats. These are the ones that clog up our arteries and cause bad cholesterol. So you need to reduce these or eliminate them as much as possible. Um, you're going to get those in all the nice things that we enjoy. So cakes, chocolate bars, biscuits. So reduce those as much as possible. You want to take out deep fried foods and takeaways as much as possible. Like I think everybody knows that there is no goodness in eating takeaways a couple of days a week. You know, it is going to have a negative impact on your health. Um, processed meats would be another one that would be classed as an inflammatory food. So you want to reduce these out of the diet. So you're looking at your sausages, your chicken burgers, all that type of stuff. What about cooked ham, packets cooked of ham, cooked in, ham? In moderation. Like everything in moderation is going to be fine. But um, certainly don't be having them every day of the week. Do you know, once or twice a week is okay. Could maybe wean yourself off them. So if, you're, if your consumption of processed meats is very, very high, then wean yourself off bit by bit, cut down to three times a week, cut down, ideally eliminate them, but maybe just bit by bit. Um, saturated fats like, so I spoke about the, the margarines and the, the cakes and the biscuits and all that kind of stuff uh, saturated fat it's going to be in red meat primarily you're going to have it in cheese um, so try and reduce that as much as possible uh, refined grains so these would be the grains that are stripped of all their nutrients and all their goodness so a good example would be white bread white pasta not a lot of goodness in there so you want to reduce those um, and obviously refined sugar because I've spoken about sugar 
sugar before on the show. So you want to reduce that as much as possible. So they would be the ones to kind of cut out the foods that you want to increase then to help fight the, the inflammation. Because all disease at the end of the day, it, begin, it starts out with inflammation in your body. Inflammation is just your body's own way of trying to protect itself from, from an illness. So, but what happens is when we release certain chemicals in our body, the inflammation becomes chronic. We have too much inflammation and it's usually characterized by itching, by swelling. Uh, when there's too, too much inflammation going on, our body doesn't know how to shut off and that's how we end up with chronic pain. Uh, so the foods to increase for it, so omega-3 fats. Uh, these would be the good ones, the oily fish. Um, you're looking at vegetables. So you want to increase your plant protein, your plant fats. Uh, vegetables, green veg are really, really good. You want to be aiming, get up there maybe on four or five portions of veg a day. Um, very Quite a lot. It is a lot. It sounds like a lot. You know, but when you look at it, most of us are probably only consuming one to two portions of fruit and veg a day mm. combined. So we want to definitely be, room for improvement. Uh, yeah, with yeah. everybody. So we want to increase fruit and veg. Um, if you're having fruit, go for about three portions a day. I wouldn't kind of go for more than that. More veg than fruit. Uh, whole grains, so like the brown rice, uh, whole grain spelt oats, rye. You want to go for grains like that. Go for a good wholemeal brown bread with lots of nuts and seeds in it instead of just your standard white sliced bread. Uh, beans, chickpeas, lentils. These are really good as well for fighting inflammation. Um, they promote um, different chemicals get in the blood or in the body that will reduce inflammation naturally. Uh, fresh garlic, ginger, uh, rosemary, olive oil, coconut oil. These are all really good ones. Probably one of the best ones that I'm going to talk about and I actually have a little recipe to go with it is uh, turmeric. Fresh turmeric, or if you can get your hands on fresh turmeric. I picked it up recently. I was lucky enough to get my hands on it at a Chinese market in Dublin. Uh, it looks a little bit like fresh ginger, uh, but if you can't get your hands on that, you can just use the regular dried ground um, turmeric or powdered turmeric. So it's really, really good. Um, what it does is turmeric, it's kind of one of, I would class it as one of nature's most powerful painkillers and anti-inflammatories. Really? It's really it's very good. interesting. Yeah. And again, there isn't a lot. OK, there's certainly more awareness now about it, about the benefits of it. But if you go back even 10 years ago, most people wouldn't have heard of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have been traditionally used as a colouring in uh, curry powders. It gives it that bright kind of vibrant yellow colour. But of course, it would have been used for four or five thousand years for its medicinal properties before it was ever used for um, culinary use. So I'd be telling people to get that in. It contains lots of different um, naturally occurring chemicals in it that do. They're proven to reduce arthritis and inflammation in the body. So it's good, not just for arthritis, any inflammation. So if you're suffering from whatever illness it may be, just look at something like cancer. Again, that is inflammation in the body. Um, all aches and pains, they're all inflammation. So it's not just um, specifically to, for arthritis. Uh, so if you a recipe to go with that, okay, we have two different ones actually. A simple one, this would be a good start to the day if you are into juicing and doing smoothies and stuff like that. Now everybody had, probably has one, so get into the habit, get it out of the, out of the cupboard wherever it's stashed away, dust off the cobwebs off it. Um, you know, it's quite simple. Even if you've got a blender, you don't have to have a good quality juicer to do this. And kids will drink this as well in the morning. You can get a can of coconut milk. Um, So a can of coconut milk is usually about 400 mils. So half of that. So you'll get two days out of this. And is it the full fat, normal coconut milk? Because you know the way you get the reduced fat one. You get the reduced fat. I would say go for the full fat one. I think it's better because, again, coconut will have good fats in there. So Mm -hmm. go for the full fat one. Um, You can buy coconut water in a carton. A lot of people kind of get mixed up with this or sometimes it's called coconut milk. That's a very watery kind of a substance, more suitable for, um, for tea and coffee and stuff like that. But the tin of coconut milk that you would be probably more familiar with using for cooking and curries and stuff like that. So for this, it'll literally take you two minutes in the morning to get this into you. If you can get into the habit of getting this in three mornings a week, ideally work up to seven days a week if you like the taste of it. Um, So half a tin of coconut milk, which is about 200 mils. One nice ripe banana. This is something I'm always telling people. I hate to see supermarkets taking ripe bananas off the shelf and putting out the bright green ones or the bright yellow ones. Go for bananas that have the nice little brown spots on them. Um... They, they contain a chemical called the tumor necrosis factor. 
it doesn't naturally occur until they have ripened to that stage. What that does, it's a natural cancer-fighting property. So go for the ones with the brown spots. Don't throw them away. They're not gone off or anything like that. So there's more goodness in those. But cut the black bits out of them. You can. If you're trying to sneak it into the kids, you know, take out the black bits. But... Um, if it's for yourself, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. It's perfectly good. It's actually better to eat it that way. Even the black bruise bits? Even the bruise bits, because the sugars and the starches in the banana at that stage have already started to break down, so it's better for your body. Your body doesn't have to work too hard in it trying to break them down. So always go for the, the nice brown bananas. Uh, so back to our smoothie, a half tin of coconut milk, one ripe banana, a half a ripe mango, if you can get your hands on a nice ripe mango. If you can't, if you pick a mango up and if it's a little bit kind of firm, just pop it into a brown paper bag. If you put a banana into the bag with it as well, it'll speed up the ripening process. So give it two or three days at room temperature. They won't ripen really in the fridge. So keep them out at room temperature. Half a ripe mango, um, a half a teaspoon of ground cinnamon, a nice heaped teaspoon of ground turmeric. So that's the one that we're talking because of its anti-inflammatory properties. And a little bit of fresh ginger as well, if you have it. Maybe a quarter inch slice of it, just peel it, pop it into the blender, or you can grate it in there. That will That's a natural anti-inflammatory food in itself. Blend the whole lot up, you'll have a nice um, sweet smoothie. It'll fill you up as well. If you want to get some ground seeds and stuff in there, you can get a nice mixed bag of ground linseed or ground chia seed or something like that. Maybe sprinkle in a tablespoon. It's a good way of incorporating um, seeds into your diet and, you know, without them getting stuck in your teeth when they're all ground up. And is that an alternative to having the porridge? That would be a good alternative because that's going to be really filling. You're getting one and a half portions of fruit in there. You're getting the good fats from the coconut milk in there. So you could start your day with that. And then if, depending on what way your day works, maybe opt for a healthier snack. Certainly at this time of year, uh, you're not going to be sitting down eating porridge every morning. So that would be a good one. Maybe alternate days, you know, have, have that one day, have your porridge the next day, something like that. So that's a good breakfast smoothie to have. And kids will drink it as well. It's nice and sweet. It's nice and bright yellow from the mango. So it's a good one to get into the kids as well. And if you make up one with the 400 mils and you're only having half of it, can you keep the other half for the you next could, day? You could do. Um, ideally, I would say to people, try and make it fresh in the morning. Uh, you will certainly still get some goodness out of it if you do it that way. But obviously, when you peel any fruit or veg shortly afterwards, within about a half an hour, a lot of the goodness, a lot of the nutrients will start to die off naturally because they're exposed to oxygen. So if you have it made up, um, I've spoken before about different smoothies and stuff that you can buy in a bottle. Um, they've got a shelf life on them, maybe of a week or two. So obviously they've got preservatives and stuff in there. So try and stay away from that if you can make your own. They'll actually work out cheaper to make your own. And when you get into the habit of doing them, you'll, you'll see how rewarding they are as well. And you said you have another recipe for us. I have another recipe. I'll just quickly run through it for you. So this is for a healthy burger. Um, it's a turkey and chickpea burger. Uh, you can use fresh turkey, you can use chicken, or you can use salmon if you want. So you can turn them into a fish burger. Uh, there's virtually no fat in them. Uh, there's, they're high-protein burgers. So what you need for these, you will need a food processor, uh, but you can pick one up if you don't have one lingering around in the cupboard again. Um, you can pick up a good quality food processor. I use it for absolutely everything. Um, so into the food processor, you need a tin of chickpeas, drained. You don't want the juice going in there. You need 200 grams of turkey or chicken or fish. So Salmon would be probably the best fish to use for something like this. And you um, just, you can like chop up a, a breast yeah. of chicken and put it in. It just doesn't roughly, have to be minced around no, like doesn't. that. Just roughly chop it because everything is going to get blitzed into a paste anyway. Uh, one medium sized onion, just again peeled and roughly chopped. One clove of garlic, one carrot peeled and grated. Um, a few optional ones that you can put in there. You can put in a little bit of grated courgette. You can put in some grated fresh ginger if you like the taste of it. But like I said, they're optional. Um, again, some spices to go in there, some ground cumin. Um, this is a good opportunity as well to get in the ground turmeric. Um, so go for a good heap teaspoon of turmeric. Um, some fresh herbs because they're always good. They're full of different um, properties that are good for our health. So fresh coriander, fresh parsley. They go well with a recipe like this. Um, if you want to sweeten it a little bit, you can put in maybe a dessert spoon of mango chutney or you could put in maybe a dessert spoon of sweet chilli sauce. Don't overdo it with something like that because they are a sugar at the end of the day. So all you want to do, season it with a little bit of salt and pepper, 
blitz it all up for 30 seconds in the food processor and then maybe with wet hands so just dampen your hands under the under the water and just shape them into a burger put them on a tray lined with a little bit of bacon parchment that is it so you don't need to fry them they don't touch a frying pan there's no oil involved in them onto a bacon tray into the oven for about 20 minutes and that is it so cook them at about 180 to 200 celsius for 20 to 25 minutes you don't even need to turn them or anything in the oven they sound lovely. They're really nice. They're really filling. They're protein rich. Uh, there's no carbs in there, or certainly no bad carbs. Because most burgers that people would be familiar with, they're full up, they're bulked up with breadcrumbs and stuff like that. So these are even a good one if you're following a gluten-free diet. They're a really good um, alternative to a burger. And you can have them hot, leave them go cold if you want, and carry them with you the following day to work and snack on them as well. Okay, fantastic. And are you going to put the recipes up on the Nourish by Nature website? I will have the recipes up on the Nourish by Nature website for both the burgers and for the the breakfast smoothie as well. Okay, fantastic. So that's nourishbynature.ie. People get the details there. And uh, thanks so much for coming in and sharing that tonight. Hopefully we'll have helped out some listeners there that might be suffering from arthritis. And for those that are not, they still sound like two Yeah, if you start incorporating foods like this in now and into the kids, you know, you're going to greatly reduce the the chances of developing those um, illnesses in later life. Fantastic. Thanks again, Sid. Thanks for having me, Sharon. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Thanks again to Sid Sheehan from Nourish by Nature. And if you have a health issue and want to find out if certain foods could help it or indeed might be making it worse, please drop me an email s.noonan at live.ie and I'll put it to Sid on his next visit to the studio. Still to come tonight, Simon from Craigie Cider will be giving us an insight into their vintage Irish craft cider made in County Wicklow. And Helena Morgan will be telling me about the Dublin cookbook that is raising much-needed funds for Temple Street Children's University Hospital. Next, though, it's time to move to the phone to Board Bia's Emer O'Donnell, Consumer Dairy Sector Manager, who's on the line to tell us more about the Discover Farmhouse Cheese Initiative. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Emer, you're welcome to the show this evening. Thank you so much, Sharon. Tell me firstly, what is the criteria to call a cheese a farmhouse cheese? Um, Well, in terms of using the word farmhouse, um, there are new guidelines from the FSAI in terms of how and how what you can call farmhouse and how you can use the term. In terms of farmhouse cheese, typically it is that the business is owner managed, that they're typically family businesses, um, that they're using traditional recipes and techniques. Um, in Ireland, in the farmhouse cheese business, each cheese is unique to its producer. So you won't find Cashel Blue, for example, made anywhere else but in Fetters and Tipperary. Um, that the milk that they use is usually from their own farm or sourced locally. So we would say up to about 50 kilometre radius. Judging from the number of visits that you have on the the website there there seems to be quite a few places in Ireland quite a few farmhouse cheeses for people to choose from there are we're very lucky we have a growing um, farmhouse cheese industry there are about 50 farmhouse cheesemakers in Ireland um, and through the discover farmhouse cheese campaign we have quite a number of farms that have opened their doors um, which they're open from April to October. So for the summer months, August, September, and up to the end of October, there's a great selection of farms where consumers can go visit. They can see how the cheese is being made, how it's matured, how cheese makers go about selecting it, and of course, tasting it, which is very important. Um, so it's a fantastic opportunity. It's, and I suppose without the campaign, these places wouldn't usually be open to the public. So. To get down and to visit a farm and to see how it's being made, um, it's a fantastic opportunity. And why did the campaign come about? Who decided that this was a good idea? Well, the, it's, it's working with COSH, which is the Association of Farmhouse Cheesemakers. And about four years ago, um, we were at an event which is a, it's called the Farmhouse and Arts and Cheesemakers of Europe. So they meet every year and they're actually meeting in Milan later um, this year in October. But they meet every year and there was a conversation which had begun with our colleagues in the Netherlands and they were already running a similar campaign. Um, they were asking the roundtable discussion were there any other countries that would like to get involved. So at the end of it, it was Ireland, the Netherlands and Germany who have come together um, through the Discover Farmhouse Cheese campaign 
um, who made an application to the European Union and we were successful in our application, which means that this is an EU co-funded campaign. So it started in July 2013 and it runs for three years. So up until July 2016, we'll be running the farm visits, we'll be running in-store tastings in October, we'll have October month of cheese, where there'll be about 100 events across the country where consumers can go and meet cheesemakers and taste farmhouse cheese and just get a better understanding and, and to really, I suppose, to get knee deep in farmhouse cheese and, and what it's about um, and to really appreciate the craft of its production. I suppose there's lots of different benefits for a farmhouse cheese maker getting involved in this, heightening awareness about their product being one. And you said there that it's EU funded. So does that mean that they get paid to actually take part? There is a small bursary. So the funding comes directly into Borbia. So we are the organisation who coordinates everything. Um, so we do provide a small bursary to each of the farms for them to open the door. So sometimes they may have to get extra staff in to help them with maybe the consumers as they come through and showing them around the farm. So, for example, St. Ola had a visit earlier this week, um, so they'd have had to have extra people on to show them around to the, 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 goat, the goat area and the housing and then through the cheese production and the tastings afterwards. Um, but it's not really about the funding for them. It's more about the awareness and the benefit of it. So it's, you know, allowing um, at a national level um, that there is a campaign to, to raise awareness of farmhouse cheese. Um, the fact, you know, that it's made locally, that it is using, you know, a local milk supply, that it's a traditional method and a craft and there's local employment. And then that these cheeses are available, obviously locally, but they are available at multiple retail. And, you know, there is an export dimension as well. Um, So it is about raising awareness and growing the industry and attracting new people in and new types of cheese um, and just general raising awareness of farmhouse cheese in Ireland. You mentioned two cheeses there. You've mentioned Santola and you've mentioned Cashel Blue. So that's Tipperary and Clare, isn't it? But there's that's lots right. there's lots of other cheesemakers in other counties. Give us a few more examples. Absolutely. So um, the Bellingham Blue and County Loud. Um, there's quite a number in Cork. So we have Coulee, Goubine, Durris, Malines, um, Cargilline, Ardsala. There's you know, quite a number in, in the Munster area. Um, there's also then the likes of Wicklow Farmhouse Cheese in County Wicklow, Carrigburn in County Wexford, um, Nocturina in Kilkenny, there's Killeen in Galway. There's a really, there's a great number of farmhouse cheeses and each are producing cheeses completely unique to them. So some may start with, maybe it's a Gouda recipe, but they make it their own. They may add flavours, they may use sheep's milk versus cow's milk or goat's milk. Um, so there's a you know a great number of farmhouse cheesemakers and they are growing, um, and to be um, to be starting into the industry, it's I suppose there is an investment cost, but there is great support available. Um, so the likes of Chagas, the dairy research facility in Moorpark, um, they provide great support in terms of developing that recipe. Where do you start designing your dairy? You know how do you source the vat? How do I get my cultures and everything else that is needed? So there's a great scientific support there. And of course, we then provide help and support in terms of the marketing and the business development. I think it sounds really fascinating, especially if you're if you have an interest in cheese and and you had time to go to the mall, you'd be traveling a lot throughout the country. But to see the different ways that different cheesemakers actually make their cheese. Absolutely. Absolutely. Each each, as I said, is different. So some people, maybe they're making a soft cheese, maybe it's a camembert style or a brie style. Maybe it's a Gouda, so the likes of a Coulee cheese in, in near McCroom and Cork, that their cheese would maybe age up to 18 months. So it's understanding, I suppose, the maturation process and what needs to be done and how they turn their cheese and what temperature the rooms are kept at. Um, so each cheese is completely different. If you want to visit a blue cheesemaker, how do they get the blue into the blue, you know, and, and what makes the cheese um, more crumbly or what makes it more creamy? And there is a huge amount of science behind cheese making. Um, but ultimately, it's about developing a product that has fantastic taste and appeal to consumers. Um, and that, you know, I suppose these companies can grow their businesses from. You said that it's a three year programme. So it started last year. And wouldn't it be incredible if you'd been to one of the farms last year and you went back this year and you saw a cheese that you saw last year and saw the difference that a year makes to it? I know, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be fantastic if you saw the cheese coming out of the mould and then 
a year later or more that this cheese has now developed its rind, it's maybe much harder, it's completely changed colour. And, you know, the cheesemakers would say if, if you took maybe a recipe for a washed rind cheese or something like a gubine or a durris or a drahan, and, if, you know, you had that cheese in West Cork, and if you brought that recipe to the other side of the country, you'd have a different product. So there's a huge amount, you know, obviously the science and the, the cheese making process has a lot to do with how the cheese turns out, but so does the climate. So, you know, maybe the West Cork air or maybe the herbs that the cows are grazing on, it will be different on the east side of the country. So, you know, there's an awful lot of that as well that, that, that has a huge, um, huge role to play. Yeah, I personally find that all very interesting and, and fascinating. As you say, the air and the soil and the grass and everything, all of that, the way it impacts on on the, the herd, be it goats or be it cows. Of course, absolutely. It, it does. It does. It plays a huge role. So whether it's, you know, the moist west cork or maybe it's a drier part of the country, um, you know, these things do affect. So, you know, it affects the flavour of the milk. It may affect maybe the ripeness of the cheese as it ages um, but it does play, play a part in, in the cheese, cheese's development and, and what it tastes like eventually. Well it's great news that these are free visits for, for yeah. people to go along to. How do they book, they need to book I would imagine just so that the, the, exactly. the farmer knows how many people to expect? Exactly so um, on our website so www.discoverfarmhousecheese.ie um, we have a free booking facility. So all we ask is that if you're interested in going along, go onto the website and you just enter your name and your email and your place will be confirmed. Um, as, I, as you said, it is important that the, the cheesemakers know how many are coming. Um, so perhaps you've met, uh, you know, maybe a cheesemaker through a market or you've seen a poster up. Um, obviously, if you can't get online, that's no problem. We'll understand. But for the most part, if people could go onto the website and book their places, that would be fantastic. And of course, we must give a special mention to O'Brien's Cheese in Ballyhahill, which is very close to Newcastle West, where the West Limerick 102 studio is. Absolutely. So they have their first visit, actually. They're, they're new on the campaign. They have their first visit on the 7th of August, um, between 11am and 12.30pm. Um, and they'll also have one again on the 14th of August. So that's quite local for your listeners and it's a great opportunity to go and see farmhouse cheese being made and which is fantastic, you know, from a, a cheese a type of cheese point of view. They make brie, they make cheddar and they make gouda. So, you know, there's a great um selection. You don't have to like one or the other, um, but you'll get to see the different types of cheese and, you know, how they develop them and how they mature them and what they end up being tasting like at the end of the day. And their cheeses have won awards and I, I know in particular at the Listowel Food Fair this year they won award in the Best Emerging Artisan Food Producer competition and I think they won an award in that last year so they have award winning cheeses there for, for people have, to taste. They have and they're a new company as well from a cheese making point of view they have been making or they have been dairy farmers for about eight generations um, but the cheese is quite new and the fact that it's winning these awards it's, it's fantastic. And Jim O'Brien there who is the head farmer I suppose like he, he's so passionate about the cheese I've Absolutely. met him myself and he is so passionate about it and you know I think that's that's a symptom of, of each of the farms and each of like every single farmhouse cheese company that I know they are all so passionate about what they do and it is this you know passion that drives them to develop these excellent tasting products and you know they are a little bit, you know, on occasion they are a little bit more expensive, but it is because they are made in small batches. They are made by hand, so you can see them filling the curd into the moulds. And um, its mechanisation hasn't really hit the industry um, that much, and um, so it, it is. It's a labour of love, and to watch the cheese is being made and to see the end product and to appreciate farmer cheese, um, I think it's, it's definitely one of one of the gifts. Well, Emer, thanks so much for sharing all the details with us. We really appreciate it. And as you said, it's discoverfarmhousecheese.ie. If people want to pop on there, they'll get all the details. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the time. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM.
Welcome back to tonight's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and if you've just joined us, we heard earlier from Sid Sheehan of Nourish by Nature in the Stool about arthritis fighting foods. And just before the break, I was chatting to Emer O'Donnell about the Discover Farmhouse Cheese Initiative. Never fear if you've missed some of the show as it will be up in the Best Possible Taste podcast later in the week along with all the previous shows. And you'll find the podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show and still to come tonight helena morgan will be telling me about the dublin cookbook that is raising much needed funds for temple street children's university hospital but we're moving from cheese to cider now at ballymaloo lit fest earlier this year i had the pleasure of being seated beside a lovely man called simon and there's nothing like a million course tasting dinner to give you the chance to get to know your fellow diners so wasn't i the lucky one to be at a table with a number of very interesting people well simon chatted away about lots of things including craggy cider and i'm delighted to talk to him again this evening cheers chin chin salut schleiter Simon, welcome to the programme. Thank you. Vintage Irish craft cider. How did it all come about? Uh, well, I come from a, a wine background. Um, I spent 20 years as a wine importer. And uh, in the latter part of that period, I got um, very interested in the making side by starting what's called a, a negotiation business, which was buying finished wine from different makers blending them together and then bottling the bottling to make uh, a wine under my own label and then uh, I decided that uh, as I needed to know more about the whole process um, of production that I would take myself off and I did a two-year uh, viticulture and enology uh, course at the University of Brighton at Plumpton College in the UK um, and as I got further into the course I realized that this is actually really what I wanted to do was to make make something so but coming home obviously with then with a la- distinct lack of vines in Ireland um, the closest thing to making wine is making cider um, and so I uh, I got together with a partner in 2011 and um, started doing some, some small batch production so is what is um, is cider brewed the way that beer is brewed, or is it more a fer- fermentation process? The way no, so it's a, it's a fermentation process. Um, well, obviously, there's a fermentation process in, in in brewing, but in brewing, you know, you have to create your your mash to begin with. So your heat up, you know, you heat up your 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 hops and your barley, etc., and make your mash, and then you will then you will ferment um, the result of that. But in cider making it's much much closer to wine so in fact you know in wine you take your you're fermenting the, the the juice of the grape and in cider making you're fermenting the juice of the apple and in fact really there is very little difference between uh white wine making and cider making apart from the fact that you have a a, a different piece of fruit and that piece of fruit in terms of uh, in, 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 in extracting the juice has to go through a different process I, I presume you didn't go down the road of doing wine because the grapes wouldn't, we wouldn't have the weather here in Ireland for grapes, whereas it's no issue growing apples in Ireland. Yeah, exactly. So the, I, I, when I was doing the course, um, we were asked to look at certain areas uh, to assess the, the, what are called the growing degree days for, for grape production. And that's essentially um, seeing how much heat is produced between the, 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 and during the growing season, which obviously runs from... Um, April till October and if you look at uh, the number of GDDs or growing degree days for, in Ireland for grape production it's we're, we're well short of the, the target but uh, in terms of apple production we absolutely produce what I would regard being probably the finest apples that I've ever tasted anywhere in the world. Tell me then about the apples and where you source them from. You don't grow them yourself. No, so we don't. We don't have an orchard as yet. Um, my partner Angus Craigie has a, a farm in in West Wicklow, but actually, when we thought we would plant an orchard there when we first started, but in fact, um, we had an advisor from Chuggers come and visit us, and, we, and the farm was deemed to be too high uh, for, for for successful commercial uh, apple production. So we currently source our apples from um, there are essentially in, in Ireland there are three uh, group bands of apple growing one is Armagh, one is North County Dublin 
and then the other is of the southern counties of uh, Waterford, Tipperary, Kilkenny, uh, and Cork, and that's we we really source from those southern counties. So it's seven varieties, six growers, five counties, but they're all Irish. Yep, absolutely. So it it's it, this is something that I really wanted to focus in on because um, as with as with wine production and great grape production. The source of the fruit is obviously the primary. The, the, raw, the quality of the raw, raw material is the most important thing. And the nuances that you will pick up from orchard to orchard uh, and from county to county is, is actually really important to me. Um, so for a good example of that would be um, two orchards in Tipperary, one, uh, one just outside Care and then the other one just outside carrick on Shore. And the uh, the soil type in the one in Carrick on Shore is a slightly heavier clay soil than the one near Care, and also the that orchard outside Carrick on Shore is consistently one degree warmer during the growing season. And the same apple variety grown on the two different sites produces significantly different flavour profiles in in the juice. The one from from Care is lighter. Uh, and slightly more elegant, whereas the one from Caracasure is is has got much richer, more robust flavours. So, do you combine the different apples to create the cider, or would you use one apple variety from one grower to make a cider or to make a batch? So, for to date, uh, we've only ever done blends. So, okay. we've blended different orchards from different growers together, and the reason for that is, as yet, and I may be proven wrong in time. I haven't actually seen one single variety that is capable of, of producing uh, a really interesting, complex cider. It may exist, but I haven't seen it yet. And you have two different types of cider there, the Bally Hook Flyer and the Dalliance. Yeah, so we, we currently have two ciders um, on the market. Bally Hook Flyer is our, if you like, our take on a sort of Breton style cider so it's made from 80% cider apple um, a variety called Dabinet uh, and that we source from uh, orchards in Waterford, Tipperary uh, and Cork and then it's but it's, the cider apple variety is a very um, it's got a very interesting flavor it's very rich it's quite low in acid so we get a lot of oxidative um, uh, flavoring during the processing and also colouring, so the colour of the juice is quite is quite uh, is quite orangey brown, and that's that's what gives cider its tra- that traditional colour. Um, but it's also full of ta- it's a juice that's full of tannins, um, so that drying sensation that you get around your teeth and gums, also found in red wine and in and in strong black tea. And so just to soften that off a little bit, we will put in 20% of what we call dessert apples or, or eating apples. Um, and in, in the past, we used to use 15% dessert apples and 5% uh, culinary apple, uh, Bramley apple. But in fact, in 2014, we changed that to 20% dessert apple, and we used two varieties. One is called Katie, which is an early ripening uh, dessert apple, and the other one is called John of Gold. Um, and they just bring a little bit of extra sweetness and roundness to that, that, that the structure of the, the Davenant apple. And then the second side we have on the market is called Dalliance, and that is a very different take on, on traditional cider because it's made only using uh, dessert apples, two varieties that come from the Capaquin estate in County Waterford, and they the one variety is called Falstaff, and the other is called Elstar. And the Falstaff brings a, uh, a very fine structure and a little twist of bitterness, a little bit like you would find in a, in a Sauvignon Blanc-based wine. Um, and the Elstar is just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful uh, Irish eating apple, which brings very crisp, bright, pure uh, fruit flavors. And so we... We, we process them separately and then ferment the varieties separately and then blend them after they've finished their alcoholic fermentation. And then we leave the, 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 the finished product to sit on its fine sediment for um, 15 months. And that just helps to 
create this softer, richer um, sensation on, 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 on the palate. So how long then is it approximately from farm to glass, say? Is it the 15 months and a few extra months, or, or how long would it be? So, well, with, with, with Ballyhook Fire, we would start processing the apples uh, at the beginning of September, and then we will be doing our um, first bottling of the 2014 vintage this month. So, what's that, uh, 10, 10 months? And then with um, dalliance, it will be it will be a fifteen month or seventeen month process in total, I suppose, from production, aging, and then bottling. Okay, and in terms of serving, then it's very important how this cider is served, isn't it? Yes. Tell us about that. So we really believe that uh, as it's a wine, you need to as, in, as it's very similar to a wine, you need to treat it like a wine. Don't serve it in a pint glass. Serve it in a stemmed glass like a wine um, don't put it over ice uh, because what we're looking for is not to uh, dilute the flavors uh, and also not to have it too cold because the key is to serve it really at about eight nine degrees uh, and in that way the, you'll get the full expression of the fruit flavors if you go too cold you'll just kill all the fruit flavors and you'll just have a sensation of drinking something that's that's it's very cold and that's not really what we're looking for we're looking for that uh, for, for you to get a better expression of, uh, of the fruit so it's really as they treating it treating it like a wine um, you know you wouldn't pour wine into a pint glass and put it over ice and that's the way we would we would hope our, our ciders are treated as well well most of us wouldn't anyway <laughs> <laughs> if you were to match it with food is there any foods that it goes particularly well with Yes, I mean, I think I think the Ballyhoe Flyer is uh, because of the the structure that it has from that that cider apple, the Dabner apple. It needs it, it goes better with with, uh, with with meats because of the protein content in meat uh, balances well with the the tannin content in the cider. And I think that you know it may be a bit cliched, but some of the some of the very obvious pairings, such as pork belly, sausages. That kind of uh, that kind of those kind of dishes go really well with with uh, with, with Ballyhoe Flyer. Dalliance, on the other hand, uh, is quite adaptable to. We've tried it with things like sushi, um, uh, turbot, uh, but also goes exceptionally well. We find with some creamy cheeses. So um, Collini would be one of our one of our sort of key matches. Dalliance and Collini. Um, and of course, but both of them do drink. You know, they do drink very well on their own as well. But again, we like a wine. We see it more as something to be to be drunk at the table. Well, I must definitely get some Collini then, because I have a bottle of Dalliance in the fridge that I have yet to try. <laughs> For anybody else that wants to try it, it is widely available. Yes, we are uh, listed in uh, Super Value and in O'Brien's off licences, and also in um, a number of independents. Uh, off licenses around the country as well and all the details of those off licenses will be on your website yes, craigiesider.ie how come angus got the the his surname used to call it and not yours <laughs> because um if you look at uh, if you look up the name tyrrell under the alcohol registered alcohol class you'll find that there are a number of uh, tyrrells already already registered so there's tyrrells wines from australia and there is a vodka being produced in the uk so uh Craigie's was, was, was free so we decided to go with Craigie's Okay, fantastic. Simon, lovely to talk to you this evening. Thanks so much for your time Thank you very much You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break you heard me talking to Simon from Craigie Cider and earlier on in the show we heard from Sid Sheehan about arthritis fighting foods and Emer O'Donnell about the Discover Farmhouse Cheese Project and you can listen to those interviews again if you wish when they go up on the Best Possible Taste podcast which is on soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show and I'll be posting tonight's show up there later on in the week.
Now, as you know, we love to talk about cookbooks here on the show. So when I heard that there was a new one on the market and it had been created with the objective of raising funds for Temple Street Children's University Hospital, I had to find out more. So we're going to hear now from Helena Morgan, who is the Corporate Development Manager at Temple Street Children's University Hospital. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Helena, tell me how the Dublin cookbook in aid of Temple Street Children University Hospital came about. Yes, well, um, last year we were approached by Concept Marketing, who had come up with this idea to do the Dublin cookbook, and they wanted to do it in aid of Temple Street Children's University Hospital. Uh, So we were obviously delighted, um, and we loved the idea, um, especially being based in Dublin. Um, And that's how it all came about, really. Tell me a little bit about what's inside the book. It's beautifully presented. I love the way it's like a, how do you call that? It's like a ring binder type cookbook. So you can open the pages nice and easily. Mm, Absolutely. And there's a real range of recipes. So um, we have sort of starters, main course, desserts. Um, You have... You can really see the sort of the chef's personality uh, because they put the recipes forward, and we didn't do any sort of editing. So some of the recipes may have two or three bullet points and eight ingredients in them. Um, others are two and a half pages long <laughs> um, with lots of instructions. Um, so it's a real nice sort of um, a mix, really, from lots of different restaurants, over 130 across Dublin. I would imagine that the response from the chefs in the restaurants whenever they were approached was quite favourable, that they were happy to take part and contribute. Mm, Absolutely. The chefs and restaurants have been absolutely amazing, Um, really supportive. They've all loved the idea um, and sort of been desperate to get involved. I mean, towards the end, we're actually having restaurants approaching us. Um, asking if there was any space and you know could we fit them in uh, which obviously we did um, but they've been they've been amazing and I think a lot of the chefs um, have actually had a personal connection to Temple Street so um, Kevin Thornton for example from Thornton Fitzwilliam Hotel um, his son Connor was actually at Temple Street when he was just a baby um, so he had like the deadly strain of meningitis and within our intensive care unit. So Kevin obviously jumped at the opportunity to help us. Um, and he's actually not only just given recipe, but been sort of instrumental in helping promote the book. Um, he came to the hospital and, and spent a lot of time sort of on the wards with the children, um, helping us to launch the book, which has been fantastic. Obviously, fundraisers like this are absolutely critical to the hospital in order to raise funds for equipment. Like, What will the money be used specifically for from the, the sales of the cookbook? Yeah, so, um, so it's priced at €15 Euros, um, and we're hoping if we sell all of the books that we have printed, um, we will then raise €50,000. Um, this would be amazing for the hospital um, and €50,000 to sort of put it into context, that could buy an incubator for us, um, which is instrumental in saving babies' lives um, and looking after them. So we're hoping to reach that target. How long did it actually take to put the, to put the book together? Was it Concept Marketing that did all the, the hard work contacting the chefs or was it you and your team that put it together? No, content marketing did all the hard work. I can take no credit for it. Um, they, yeah, spent a lot of time. Um, it took it took many months uh, getting all the recipes together. Um, and it was one of those things, I think once we'd got a few recipes on board, um, content marketing found it a lot easier. So um, I think once we had a few of the sort of Patrick Gabot and Derry Clark and Oliver Dunn, once they were on board, um, sort of well, quite well-known chefs, that really helped. Um, and they seem to come in sort of thick and fast after that. But it was, you know, it's a lot of hard work putting the book together, laying it all out, um, all the proofing and editing, um, but content marketing were amazing. Because, of course, with recipes, they have to be down to a tea or else, you know, you don't want somebody putting in twice as much of something that they should be putting into the recipe. And you've mentioned a number of very high-end Michelin star chefs there, but the recipes themselves are designed for people to make at home. Give us an idea of the sorts of recipes that are in there. 
Yeah, so I mean, I have made one myself. Actually, I've been sort of working my way through. There's obviously 140 recipes, um, but yeah, for example, like the pea and ham soup was one I made. Um, there's seven ingredients, and um, it's very easy, and it tasted absolutely amazing. And who was um, that by? Which chef put that in? So that was Oliver Dunn, um, okay. from Cleaver East. Yeah, um, but yeah, very simple. It tasted delicious. Um, and then, for example, there's I mean, there's recipes from the Mimos on North Strand Road um, they were actually the first recipes that we got and they are just a small you know, Italian family run restaurant um, so yeah there's all sorts of restu- um, recipes you could choose from Do you have a personal favourite yourself? Um, so I did try the um, so the, it was brown tomato actually but it was the beetroot and thyme risotto with goat's cheese um, I'm quite a big fan of goat's cheese <laughs> and that was yeah delicious really easy to make and um, yeah lovely As you said now it is Dublin it's the Dublin cookbook so it is all chefs and restaurants from the Dublin area although I do think Nevin Maguire did sneak one in there but we yeah. forgive him that <laughs> have you any plans to roll it out to other parts of the country and maybe have a Munster one or a Limerick one for example we would absolutely love to and we are talking about it at the moment with concept marketing and we're delighted that they um, are keen to do another book and they they really want to keep Temple Street um, as the chosen partner obviously as as a national children's hospital um, it really makes sense for us to you know remain the charity partner so that's fantastic um, and yeah we would love to um, so we are in talks at the moment about doing that I mean there's lots of amazing restaurants all over Ireland so um, I definitely think we could uh, create more books (laughs) Well definitely keep us posted about that so that we can spread the word for you in the meantime it costs 15 euros and where can listeners get a copy? Yes so um, they can go to www.templestreet.ie forward slash fundraise um, and on there, there is a list of all the stockists. We have over 100, um, over 40 um, restaurants who are stocking the book for us. Um, but they can also order online on that website and we will send the book directly to them. Fantastic. Well, good luck with it all, Helena. I do hope now that I will see a Limerick one out in the not-too-distant future and best of luck with it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleiter. Lovely to chat to Helena and if you buy a copy of the cookbook and try a few recipes in it I'd love to hear from you so please do drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie. That brings us to the end of tonight's interviews. Thanks for joining me and thanks to all of tonight's guests Sid Sheehan, Emer O'Donnell, Simon Tyrell and Helena Morgan. A final reminder that the best possible taste podcast is online at soundcloud.com forward slash food dash and dash drink dash show. I'll be back at the same time next week but before I go let me tell you what's planned for next week's show all being well. Rachel Keeley will be back with a new restaurant review. Fulcher Ireland's Sinead Hennessy will have details of food events taking place in August and wait for it. I'm being interviewed. Yikes. You know I've mentioned a couple of times that I've been working on a food theme trip to Belfast. Well, it's all finalised. Full details were revealed here on West Limerick 102 FM when Trish McMahon interviewed me for her exchange programme. And I'll be airing that interview here on Best Possible Taste next Tuesday. So until then, enjoy the last few days of July. Where is the summer going? Have a great week and bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!